This past week, the world of surgery lost a true giant, John Daly. Dr. Daly was recently reappointed dean of the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, a post he had previously occupied from 2002 to 2011. He also still served as the Harry C. Donahue Professor of Surgery, conducting cancer operations and caring for patients facing the hardest times in their lives. Over his illustrious career, Dr. Daly has been a leader of so many of the surgical societies and mentored countless students, residents, and fellows. My own relationship with Dr. Daly commenced when I was a medical student at Cornell University Medical College from 1993 to 1997, and he was chairman of surgery there. For those of you who have listened to this podcast or are getting acquainted with it now, the January 7th episode, What's in a Name, where I somehow ended up adopting the name Joel, featured Dr. Daly. Definitely take a listen. Not long ago, I had the chance to catch up with Dr. Daly, and after hearing the story of his life, I asked him if I could interview him for a future book. He agreed, and I listened to the incredible story of his life and his bout with liver failure and his life-saving liver transplant. I was planning to have him on the set as an upcoming guest, never guessing that the time for that was so limited. Nevertheless, I still want to tell the story he shared with me, as I think it represents a true surgical life, a life well-lived by someone who cherished the responsibility of being a surgeon and was honored to care for so many over the years. Dr. Daly loved surgery. He always seemed tireless in his care of patients, available to them at all times of day and night, no matter what was going on in his life. He also held students and residents to very high standards, expecting us to know everything about our patients, both related to their medical status and complications and other issues that may be going on in their lives. When we would round, he would talk about each patient as a person, always conducting the conversations and teaching in front of them to make sure they were involved in the teaching and decision-making. I think there are lessons in this for all of us. Lessons about resilience, the power of healing, and the true privilege it is to be able to care for those who need us. I hope it does Dr. Daly justice. The following is his story. John Daly grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. His dad was an accountant, and his mother was a bookkeeper. Daly always liked science, but didn't know much about the practice of medicine until he spent a day with his cousin, a family physician. Daly was in high school at the time, and he was just blown away. Quote, I went over to his office, and he let me in the office with his patients, and then he and I went on house calls. And I just thought how amazing it was to be able to go see people who felt badly, were ill, and then he was able to help them, to treat them. He would see children all the way up to 80 or 90 year olds that he was making house calls on, and I just thought it was remarkable." Unquote. From then on, Daly knew he would have a career in medicine. During college in 1967, he obtained a scholarship to work in the hospital and ended up getting paired with Stanley Brick at the University of Pennsylvania. As a resident in the lab of Dr. Jonathan Rhodes, Dudrick was the first person to successfully demonstrate the use of total parenteral nutrition, or IV feeding, to animals and then humans, a huge accomplishment that continues to save countless lives 
to this day. Dudrick had a huge influence on Daly, securing his desire to become a surgeon. Daly was always a guy who believed in hard work and absolutely cherished the opportunity to help people when they are sick. It seemed to him the most wonderful thing in the world, and he felt incredibly blessed to be in a position to do this. He continues to feel this way to this day. Daly went to medical school at Temple, and upon graduation, he went to the University of Texas in Houston for his surgical residency in 1973. He chose that location because his mentor had gone there a few years before to start their surgical program. During medical school, he also married his wife, a nurse who was as dedicated to the care of the sick as he was. She herself spent a year in Vietnam caring for injured soldiers. Although Daly enjoyed many different disciplines of surgery, he found surgical oncology, the surgical care of cancer patients, the most gratifying. He loved the field because it allowed him to make a big difference in the life of his patients. Quote, and there are patients that you have, at least if they're cured, for a long time. So it's not as though you fix their aneurysm and they go off and you never see them, or you fix their hernia and they go off. You're with them for 5, 10, 15 years. So I like that. It was a little bit like being a primary care doctor, and yet at the same time, doing complex surgery, unquote. Daly then completed his fellowship and his first stint as an attending at the famous M.D. Anderson Cancer Center. He spent six years, from 1980 to 1986, at Sloan Kettering in New York City until he was offered a job as the head of surgical oncology at the University of Pennsylvania in 1986. This was a homecoming for him and his wife, who both grew up outside of Philadelphia. He had four healthy children by this point. His career was flourishing and really everything seemed perfect for him. But then in 1990, he decided to donate blood at a blood drive. A few days later, he noticed a postcard in his pile of mail. It looked rather innocuous, and he figured it was a thank you note for participating in the drive. But that wasn't the case. Quote, I donated blood, and I got a postcard saying that I had hepatitis. I think that's what the postcard said, but it said I should go see my doctor for further testing. I had no symptoms. I had no idea that I had this at all. And you know, I just have to tell you, it was very frightening to get that postcard because I didn't know with hepatitis C back then when I got it. I don't think we knew very much about C. It was just before that it was called non-A, non-B. But in any event, I knew that this was not good, unquote. Wow. That's a nice postcard. I can imagine it had a picture of Miami Beach on the front, and on the back it said, Wish you were here, only not really because you have hepatitis. You may want to get that checked out. Awful. Not a great way of breaking bad news. Nevertheless, that is how he found out. No symptoms, no hint of any problems. I asked him how he thinks he contracted the virus. Quote, When I was training in surgery in Houston, we had a very, very busy, very active emergency department with just, you know, a ton of patients coming in. And I got stuck so many times. And in addition, senior surgeons used wire for fascia closures, and the wire would cut your fingers even when you were double gloving, unquote, which was never back then. I then asked him if exposure to hepatitis or other infectious diseases was ever something that made him nervous in those days or even crossed his mind. Quote, so the answer is no. That was the time we didn't know much about it, and it was a time almost like if you had blood on your gown, it was a badge of courage. I really didn't worry about what would happen if you got stuck in the operating room. 
You took your gloves off. You walked to where the circulating nurse was. She poured some betadine on your hands, and you went right back into the operation, unquote. This statement rang true with me. A big difference in my field is that we typically know what infectious diseases our patients might have. That's in the field of transplant. They have all been tested for hepatitis B, C, HIV, and a number of other less concerning viruses. When I get stuck in the OR with someone negative for those infections, I don't even think twice about it. I'll typically change my glove and keep operating, much like Daly described. But in other disciplines of surgery, you really don't know what viruses or other infections may be lurking in the blood of your patients, ready to shimmy up needles and creep through your hole in your glove and into your bloodstream. It is one of the many costs of being a surgeon. This can be particularly hazardous in trauma surgery, where things move fast and the chance to stick yourself is high, and the patient population is naturally at higher risk for having been exposed to these viruses. Over the next 10 years, Daly found himself subjected to brutal treatment regimens to try and clear the virus. The majority of protocols were in randomized controlled trials, and the failure rate of the treatment was extremely high. As recently as a few years ago, we could only hope for a 20% cure rate, which we call SVR, or sustained viral response, with the most common strains of the virus, and back then the success was much lower. And perhaps worse than that, the, the side effects were truly miserable. The main ingredient of most of those trials was interferon. The side effects of this drug include exhaustion, night sweats, full body pain, joint pain, headaches, shaking, and nausea. You name it. I have numerous patients who suffered mightily on it, and even more, who ultimately gave up the treatment, which goes on for months or even a full year, just to try and enjoy a 20% chance of clearing the virus. I personally know some transplant surgeons who tried to keep practicing on this treatment, but found it impossible. And these are some of the toughest surgeons I know who can operate for hours and days on end without ever taking a break. Somehow, Daly managed to endure this for almost a decade while maintaining a busy surgical practice, coming to a new institution as a chairman, and succeeding in leadership, operating, and teaching. This included the years when I knew him, and he always looked fresh, strong, and confident. I would never have guessed he was going through this. I asked him if he thought any of his colleagues knew about his illness. He did not think so. But how could he do this? Quote, well, I can just, I can tell you I would not want to do it again. You know, I guess it's one of those things. In a sense, it's like you have no choice. That you have a job, you have a family, you have children. It's just something you do. You just get up every morning and do it, unquote. That quote typifies daily in so many courageous patients I have had the pleasure of interacting with. It brings to mind the kidney failure patients on dialysis who get up at four in the morning to dialyze three days a week, and then, right after the gigantic needles are removed from their arms, they rush to work at 10 a.m., feeling like crap, lacking all energy, because it's just something you do. Or the patients who are on peritoneal dialysis each and every night and then drag themselves to work each morning because it's just something you do. But not everyone does it. And it is unfair to judge patients for that. I'm sure each patient feels differently, tolerates therapies differently, manifests disease differently. But it is fair to be impressed by the drive of the John Daly's of the world, although not including the golfer John Daly. To be fair, I have always loved watching him. I just don't want to give the impression he is my role model.
Daly further explained that some of the trials he was in had him on serious doses of interferon following the concept that if some doesn't work, try more. A concept that seems reasonable, but I can tell you from my own lab that it tends not to be the case. More is not always better. And with medications, it does get you further out of the therapeutic range and deep into the toxicity range. I asked him how he could possibly work, much less thrive, and take over a new program in the busiest and most competitive city in the world while subjecting himself to such absolute misery. Quote, I, well, the answer was I did. I continued to work, but it was brutal. I'm not sure I would do it again. It was, I was, as you know, I was the chairman of the department, so I was very active as a surgeon, but then I had all the issues of being a chairman. I'd go home at night, I took the interferon, typically in the evening, so that the side effects would be lessened the next day, but it is brutal. You have night sweats, pain, myalgias, headaches. You just feel weak and terrible. But during that time period, my thyroid, in a sense, burned up from the interferon, and so I became hypothyroid. I actually developed myxedema, unquote, a syndrome of swelling of skin, weight gain, mental dullness, and sensitivity to cold associated with hypothyroidism, quote, because I didn't know that I was hypothyroid and they didn't know about that being a complication. I went to a neurologist because I thought I was losing my memory. And within about, I'd guess, 20 minutes of being in his office, he said, clinically, you have myxedema, unquote. These particular symptoms abated once he was started on thyroid replacement. Toward the end of Daly's tenure at Cornell, he finally achieved SVR from his hepatitis C. In general, with our patients, again, before the newer fantasy drugs that we now know about were discovered, we would try one or maybe two courses of treatment before throwing in the towel. That is, if the patient can even tolerate one course. But Daly persisted over a decade and finally beat hepatitis C. Or so he thought. During this time, he also succeeded as one of the finest chairmen of surgery in the country. Believe it or not, hepatitis C wasn't the only thing on Daly's plate. His beloved and loyal wife, the nurse who he had married while in medical school and herself had spent a year in Vietnam taking care of soldiers, developed abdominal pain. I'm sure that with everything else going on in their lives, this right-sided pain initially didn't seem like a big deal. Sadly, while Dr. Daly was soldiering on in the throes of interferon therapy, his beloved wife was diagnosed with appendiceal cancer. She had her surgery at Sloan Kettering and was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. I'm sure Daly knew exactly what that meant, what she would go through over the next few years, or however much time she had left, with difficult chemotherapy and radiation regimens, all while he was enduring his own brutal treatment. But wait, it gets worse. Although Daly had achieved SVR, and perhaps for a brief period thought he may have beat this thing, that conviction was shattered when one of his screening CT scans identified a small cancer. Patients with hepatitis C, and particularly those with cirrhosis, require periodic CT scans every six months to look for hepatocellular cancer, and it was on one of these scans that his was discovered. This was treated with radiofrequency ablation, and he moved on. Somewhere in the midst of this, Daly was contacted by Temple, his med school alma mater. Temple was having some problems, the medical school was on probation, faculty morale was low, and numerous clinicians and researchers were walking out the door. Temple needed someone with energy and drive to come in and turn things around. Despite everything going on in Daly's life, he saw it as an opportunity to come home again for both him and his wife. 
In 2002, Daly became the dean of the medical school at Temple University. He paused his operative schedule at this point as the administrative responsibilities of running a major medical center, including students, clinical faculty, and researchers, were immense. Daly was still functioning at a high level at this point, not thinking that he was in trouble medically and certainly not thinking he might need a transplant. I asked him, given that he was cirrhotic at this point and already had one liver cancer, did he think maybe he was in a bit of denial regarding his condition and potential limitations? Quote, I, I probably was. I haven't thought about it like that so much. But I think the answer to that is yes. I'm thinking, I can function, you know, I can go to work. But clearly things were getting worse and worse all the time. In retrospect, looking at pictures of myself, I wasn't at all. But when you look in the mirror, it's different than a picture. Unquote. Liver disease is funny that way. There are many people out there who are cirrhotic with a knobby shrunken liver, but they have no idea. Perhaps their energy is down, but then again, who doesn't feel tired sometimes? Daly is not a person who would ever allow a little tiredness to hold him back. Maybe you yourself, while you listen to this, are harboring a beaten up shrunken liver as I speak. Yeah, you. But at some point, when the liver starts to decompensate, it may suddenly become obvious to the people around you. Perhaps it starts with a yellow tinge in the eyes, or maybe a little extra fluid on the legs, or maybe suddenly your pants don't fit right because of some fluid in your belly. Sometimes people think they are doing fine until they suddenly show up at the hospital confused, in a coma, vomiting up blood. That's the way liver disease can be. A person like John Daly, who rarely thought of himself or his own health, who spent all his time taking care of others, being a leader, and now was preoccupied with his wife's health, could easily have missed subtle signs of his own decompensation. But at some point, he would be unable to deny it. That point came for Daly about six months after his return to Temple. Finally, after all these years, he stopped being able to function. He was exhausted. He was swollen. He was yellow. He couldn't bend over to put his shoes on. He was officially decompensated. Daly made his way across town and was listed for a liver transplant at the University of Pennsylvania. He was actually lucky. Although he was ill, he was not sick enough to make his way up the transplant list. That, of course, is the sad irony of the liver transplant list. You need to get really sick to qualify for a liver, but not too sick to get a liver transplant. But in Daly's case, because of his tumor, which was the right size and location, he would qualify for a MELD exception. This was his ticket to a liver transplant. Daly spent the next nine months on the transplant list while his MELD score continued to climb because of his exception. I asked Daly if he was confident about his outcome at this point. He really was in the best possible situation. He was somewhat decompensated, but not nearly as sick as many patients above him on the list. He had a tumor exception with a fairly small tumor in the liver that had been treated. He was getting some of the best care possible in our country. And he himself was a surgeon who had spent a career taking care of patients with cancer, including in the liver. No one believed in the quality of surgical care in this country more than John Daly, himself one of the highest quality practitioners around. Quote, no, I wasn't confident. I thought the caregivers at Penn were terrific, but I wasn't confident. And you know what played on my mind a lot was the fact that my wife had a terminal illness. She had stage four cancer, and so she and I would talk about what would happen if something happened to me. This was a period of time when she was still healthy enough, although receiving treatment, but we both knew what the long term was going to be there. 
So I think that was the impetus, that we didn't want to leave the kids alone, if you will. Unquote. It just shows you that no matter how much you know about disease and healthcare and surgery, in the end, illness and operations require a true leap of faith. You never know what is going to happen, and you don't remain in control. This is particularly hard for surgeons. These months were a true roller coaster for Daly. He continued to push on at work, still trying to revive the spirit and status of Temple. He continued to support his wife, who was doing fairly well at this point, despite her terminal condition. And he was waiting for someone to die, hopefully someone young and healthy who had a lot of life left in him. That's not to say Daly really was thinking that. It is just the reality of being on the transplant list. After roughly nine months, he did get a call that he was back up for a transplant, that someone ahead of him was the primary, but that person had a fever and may not be transplantable. Quote, they were saying, you know, don't travel. Well, I wasn't traveling anyhow, but in any event, that was the phone call for that, unquote. Daly didn't end up getting that liver, but imagine the emotional agony. Already you were waiting for some healthy young person to die so you can live. And now, after this phone call, you were hoping for some other person, maybe young, maybe old, to step aside and likely die so you can live. Shortly thereafter, the actual call came through. I asked him to describe that. Quote, it was about 10 days later. It was on a Saturday. That's very distinct to me. And it was about six, five or six, I think, at night on a Saturday. And my, it was just my wife and I here. And the nurse called and said, there is a donor for you. Will you accept it? And it's like no other call because I think, interestingly, I wasn't prepared. Here I'd practiced medicine all those years and was a surgeon doing liver resections and things. And I'd been, I'd been on the list and just 10 days before had gotten the backup offer. But it really hits you. And then, then you have to make that decision. And so I said yes, and they told me to get packed up and ready and come in within a couple of hours. And so I called my wife, and she was upstairs and came down. And she knew just looking at me. She had heard the phone ring because it was the home phone. So she already... We hugged, and we both cried a little bit. And then we started to get ready. Unquote. The emotion was obvious in Daly's voice, caused both by his own confrontation with mortality and thoughts of his wife. She was there for him now, even though he really wanted to be there for her. There had to be a lot of irony here. They both had life-threatening illnesses, but for Daly, he could live as long as someone was there to give him the gift of his own life. For his wife, there was no possible gift, and they both knew that. I asked Daly to recount the experience of going in for the transplant. Was he able to maintain any type of control over the situation, or did he switch fully into patient mode? Quote, oh, I think at that point you switch over. You're in the patient mode because you're helpless. You're basically being told what to do, where to go, what to do. You get into the room, they give you the gown, you put on, you know, it's interesting about clothes, uh, and I do the white coat ceremony. We started that at Temple when I was, well, the coat means something, the white coat means something to students and all this. And boy, you put on a gown on somebody and there's a different sense. They lose, and I lost my identity a bit. You become subservient, if you will. I automatically went into the patient mode and just went forward. And they, I think the transplant happened at about four in the morning. I went downstairs and I do remember the operating room being absolutely freezing cold and laying there on a stretcher. 
and the nurse brought me over some heated blankets, and I just thought she was wonderful. End quote. This reminds me of a my recent very minor knee surgery. When I woke up, I remember how warm the blankets felt and how much I loved the nurse for giving them to me. We should all keep that in mind. I asked Daly if he was worried he might die during surgery. Quote, I wasn't frightened. I mean, at that point, I had made up my mind. I wasn't scared at all about it. But you are absolutely helpless. I mean, you know, you go in, they tell you to move over from the stretcher, from the bed. You know, you lay there, your arms are out, they put the straps on your arms. The IV had already gone in, and, well, mercifully, it's relatively short. They don't tell you to count backwards anymore, but they give you the oxygen and give you the medication, anesthesia, and you go off to sleep. So you're not, you're not fully aware of things around you and people talking, but it seemed very professional. There was nobody that was laughing or joking or any of that, I remember, but it was four in the morning. It was a different time. They, were, they wanted to get on with the business, and so I just think that you feel very subservient. Not helpless, maybe that's too strong a word, but it's not in your control at all, anything that's happening to you, unquote. Daily surgery, performed by Abraham Shaked and his team at the University of Pennsylvania, went smoothly, as did his recovery. He was home on Friday, post-operative day five, and other than one minor episode of rejection, he has been entirely healthy. His recovery certainly presented some challenges, particularly getting his strength and muscle mass back. But by three weeks after surgery, he was back at work as the dean. I asked Dr. Daly if he had met his donor's family. Quote, you know, I have not. I have not met them. I have communicated by letter with them, but I have not. I did not ask to meet with them, but I have thought about it. And this conversation with you triggers that again. I don't know. I have mixed emotions, I guess, about it. Unquote. I asked if he knew how his donor died. Quote, no, I did not know that part. Just about him being a wonderful young man with promise. But no, I don't know how he died. I always made the assumption it was a vehicular accident with a car or something else, but I honestly don't know the answer to that, unquote. I imagine it is hard for Daly to know more about his donor. He is a man who has spent his whole life helping others. Even through his illness, he never really stopped to focus on himself. To be honest, if it wasn't for his wife's illness, the thought of her impending death leaving his children as orphans, he might not have even signed up for a transplant. I imagine the details of his donor's death, which of course had nothing to do with Dr. Daly's illness and his ultimate recovery, would somehow feel like a failure to him. Daly spent his life preventing or at least delaying the death of others. The idea that someone else's death is what led to Daly's life may be too much to bear. But the experience as a patient was something that Daly benefited from. It has changed the way he practices, and he hopes has made him a better doctor. Of course, he didn't get back to doctoring until he finally stepped down from being dean about eight years later. It was about that time that his loving wife finally died, succumbing to her cancer roughly a decade after she was first diagnosed. After a short leave, Daly returned to the job that he was always supposed to be doing as a surgeon treating patients with cancer. I asked him how the experience has changed him as a doctor. Quote, there are all sorts of ways. I think I listen to people better. I listen to patients, I should say. I probably don't listen to people, but I listen to patients better. And I try to be much more aware of who they are in their surroundings. 
Because what struck me so much with myself was that you're not just a patient alone, you have a family. And maybe you're worried like crazy about trying to support your kids or paying for their college. Or in my instance, my wife was sick with terminal cancer. So I was wondering if there were still going to be parents around for my children. And so it has made me try to delve as much into that with patients as about them. I mean, obviously, it's them and their symptoms and genetics and all sorts of things. But it is an awful lot about what they do in life and who's there to support them, who are the people around them. And the second piece of it for me is that I touch them. And the breast cancer patients, you know, I give them a hug. I'll hold their shoulders. You know, I do that in their post-operative period when I'm overseeing somebody. Today, I operated on two ladies, and I saw them in the recovery room. I would hold their leg, hold their foot, uncross their legs. I just feel that touch thing to me has become so much more important. And I guess the third thing is I'm much more introspective about things. I don't let things bother me as much as they would have before. I just, you know, I feel that I don't get so upset when there's too much traffic or something's not going well at work or this or that. I just say, you know, geez, think about what else there is in life. I think it has changed me a lot that way. Unquote. I then asked Daly if he shares his story with his patients. Quote, oh, I do. Yes, I share it with them. I share it with the medical students that I teach. I have a group of them every Wednesday for two or three hours that I'm with third-year students, and I share that. I've shared it with first-year students, and I do with patients. I share also that my wife had cancer. If they're in there with a diagnosis of cancer, I tell them she had cancer as well, and I know a bit of what it's like for you to be waiting for test results and trying to figure out whether things are getting better, getting worse. So yeah, I'm much more open about all of this than I was beforehand, unquote. I remember when I was a medical student, I always thought Daly was an amazing doctor, a role model, but he did seem to me a private person, someone who kept his relationship with patients and trainees fairly formal. He seemed to me a traditional surgeon, cut from the cloth of the Halstead model. It is clear to me now that his illness has left him more open, more exposed. Like he intimated when he recounted wearing the hospital gown, when you were sitting there with your butt hanging out, exposed to the world, with people coming in and out of your room at all hours of the day and night, you lose any sense of privacy. While that can be unfortunate, for a person like Daly, it probably changed him in some positive ways, increasing his warmth and empathy. I asked Daly for his thoughts on surgery now. Would he do it all again, knowing what he now knows, including what he went through given that his illness was entirely caused by his own career? Without he any hesitation, he answered the affirmative. Quote, I love the field. I just love it. It's the best job, in my view, in the world. I wish I had been more careful. I wish I had obviously done things differently and had not gotten hepatitis C. Frankly, I feel very blessed, even though it was a decade or more before these new drugs had come out, and the response rates were poor to interferon and ribavirin. But no, the answer to your question is I would do it all over again. I listened to a talk at the Congress in Washington early this week about what percentage of physicians say they wouldn't do it again. It was astounding to me, 30% or 35%. I love it. I think I'm so blessed to be able to do what I do every day. And think about it, you know, the reverse. I can talk to someone about what they have 
and they'll sign a consent form and they'll lay on the table as I laid on the table and let me operate on them to try to make them better. And that's, I don't know, it is, to me, it's wonderful, unquote. That's so much the Dr. Daly that I know. Finally, we talked about Tom Starzl and his incredible accomplishments in making this field of liver transplantation a reality. It turns out that Daly did have a chance to meet with him after his transplant. They had met before on some panel at some conference about this or that, but that was before Daly benefited from the efforts of Dr. Starzl's life. More recently, when Daly was invited to give a talk at Pittsburgh, he asked his hosts if they could arrange a meeting. Daly got a chance to spend an hour with the man and thank him for what he did for allowing Daly to live. I finished by saying, quote, I look at a guy like Starzl and then I think about my own career, and I've done a few things. I can do liver transplants, but there's no way I could have done what he did. Figuring it out, having all these deaths, having people saying he was crazy and pushing through it. Do you look at him that way? Do you feel like maybe you practiced in a different time than I did? Or do you feel the same way? Unquote. Daly said, quote, yes, but I look at him the way you do. I think to have the fortitude that he had and the perseverance and the vision, I just don't think I have that. I just don't think I would have been able to do what he did, unquote. Hmm, I'm not so sure about that. I suspect Daly had the fortitude and the perseverance. I think you can tell that by listening to his story. He was a born surgeon, and he's one of the best role models I have ever met. 